Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this year, we started a new series that we call Power Pairs. That's when we feature prominent Minnesotans you may know individually. But in the context of relationship, you get to know them in a fresh new way. Today, we're listening back to my conversation with a married couple that makes you think, how do they make that work? They seem to have a lot going on. I'm talking about Steve Grove and Mary Grove. Steve is the publisher of the Star Tribune. He took on that job this past spring after serving as Minnesota's commissioner of the Department of Employment and Economic Development. And that was during the height of the pandemic. He grew up in Northfield. Mary Grove is a venture investor and managing partner at Bread and Butter Ventures, which invest in early stage tech startups in healthcare, the food system and enterprise software. She has a long track record of supporting tech startups. She spent her early childhood years in Iowa. This power pair met while they were working at tech giants Google and YouTube. And in 2018, they decided to leave Silicon Valley and move to Minnesota with their twin toddlers. I found their personal stories and their journey as a couple inspirational. So I started our conversation by asking Steve and Mary how they make each other better people. I think the first thing that struck me about Mary and that I really aspired to lean into myself was just her confidence confidence and ability to make decisions. I mean, she just kind of exudes this confidence. She's thoughtful, but she doesn't overthink things. She just goes. And I think that kind of really inspires me um, as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think as I got to know her more and saw her with her family and now with our kids, of course, she's a very caring person. She's always looking out for other people, looking for ways to take care of them. She's from a small immigrant family that came here from Thailand. And so they're tight. It's just, it's, it's a few of them, um, but they look after each other. And I think seeing her do that every day um, inspires me to try to do the same. So leadership, you 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 feel and see that in her. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. She's she she just she rolls. I think she just has a sort of confidence that is unflappable. Um, we've been through a lot together, and seeing how she just drives forward um, and doesn't get mired very quickly, um, I think is inspiring to me. Yeah, I feel that same way, Mary. <laughs> you do exude confidence, you but both. there's also a, a kindness as well. How do you think Steve upgrades you? In so many ways, really. I mean, we have such a such a close relationship, and I think about it on three different levels. So one, we are really best friends. We have a close friendship that is rooted in trust and, you know, such different backgrounds and yet so similar. Mm-hmm. He's also just an incredible confidant and in the person that I and so many people go to, right, just to share everything, really. And he's a great sounding board. He listens first, mm-hmm. which you'll hear sort of as a theme throughout his life. Uh, and then he acts and supports. And then he's just a true, true partner, a true 50-50 partner in every sense of the word from our relationship to how we think about our professional lives to our role as parents. And so just very inspirational and has really shown me, you know, what the power of unconditional love is. I met uh, the two of you for the first time about 10 years ago um, when I was in um, television news. I was interviewing you about a summer camp that the two of you started together uh, for Minnesota middle school and high school students interested in studying technology and possibly pursuing tech careers. I I love, you know, education uh, stories. You used your own money, if I recall this, and a few donations just from friends and family 
to create this program that flew these kids to California to tour places uh, like the headquarters of Google uh, uh, and where your friends worked at YouTube and LinkedIn. I remember this vividly, Instagram. Uh, Also, that they could just learn and meet people um, in careers that they might want to pursue. And I just, I was so struck by that. I'm like, here are these two successful people coming here to just kind of share that. Uh, it, it was the beginning of your nonprofit, which is now called Silicon North Stars. So, Mary, tell me, what was going on in your lives that made you want to do this? And, and why not do it in California, where you lived at the time? Yes, thanks, Angela. So Silicon North Stars has been an important part of our lives for the last 10 years. So the nonprofit turned 10 this year. and Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. The, the genesis is really, as you noted, Steve is from Minnesota. Originally, we have deep roots here and a deep fashion passion for the community here. At the time, right after we met, we're married, we were living in Silicon Valley, right, both working at, at Google and YouTube, and we had no plans to move back here. And so this was our way of collaborating on a passion project originally, which was how do we connect the place we have roots and where we're from with where we lived at the time and the resources we had access to vis-a-vis the tech industry. And so that's always been our mission is, is really about supporting youth specifically from Minnesota and specifically from economically underserved backgrounds here to inspire and educate them towards futures in technology. Right? We believe passionately that seeing is believing, that having that early exposure, you know, when you're in eighth grade, ninth grade in high school, I certainly had no idea I was going into tech until I did. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and you so, grew up in Iowa, right? So I was born in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, my parents were both immigrants from Thailand but quickly moved. They moved to California as soon as my dad graduated from chiropractic school. So mm. I was raised in San Diego, Okay, went to college in the Bay Area. And so Midwest roots, California upbringing. And we really felt like we want to connect, you know, back to back to the Midwest. I remember my assignment that day. I didn't want to leave because the energy in the room mm-hmm. in the beginning, this may have been maybe the second group of kids yeah. that had gone and come back. And uh, you had a video, you were showing them the pictures of them touring places. And then I got to interview some of the kids. Uh, what stands out in your memory, uh, Steve, about why at that time in your life you wanted to give something back like that? Oh, it's super fun. I mean, I think for us, um, it was early in our marriage, and I think we were preparing to have a family but hadn't yet, and we're, we're kind of struggling on that front. And so we had this energy, this kind of space in our life that we thought, gosh, you know, um, what if we helped some kids that weren't a part of our family? And these eighth-grade students who we got to meet through some partnerships that we developed, you know, uh, we're all just heading into high school and trying to figure out what their next step was. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think the chance to – make that connection for us was just an early kind of brainstorm. And once we did, we realized that the many of the people they met were as inspired as they were. Um, we saw volunteers from across Silicon Valley thrilled to come and help Your friends, young people. Our friends. Yeah, many of them who were from the Midwest as well, but were living in Silicon Valley. I thought, gosh, you know, if I had this resource when I was younger, I might have had a different pathway myself. And so it just kind of built on itself. Uh, it was sort of an idea that then just grew into a nonprofit. So 10 years later, Mary, what? how, how has it changed? How has it evolved? And what is your involvement in it still? So we're super involved in it. I, I run the program today, day to day. And, you know, it really has evolved. We have over 150 students in the program now. So when it began, it was take a rising cohort of ninth graders. So summer before you start high school, mm-hmm. selected through our partner organizations, bring them to Silicon Valley, spend a week touring the best of, right? So visiting places like Google, YouTube, Airbnb, Uber, going to Stanford, going to Berkeley. You swing by Stanford, right? Which is where you went to college. So it they is. could see a college campus. It is. And that idea of, of seeing is believing, right? We'd meet mentors. We would give the students 
a startup exercise where they would actually form teams, do design thinking, mm. pitch ideas in front of a room full of, of local entrepreneurs and supporters. And so that was the model for the first few years. And it was come back to Minnesota, start high school. We try to build an infrastructure here on the ground to support the students once they started school. But fast forward to 2018, when Steve and I moved here, we continued the program, you know, as it had been running. And as we got to know the ecosystem here, we realized there's a thriving, growing, emerging tech ecosystem here. And wouldn't it be great if the students actually just built the relationships locally mm-hmm. and could be invited to the local events, could meet their mentors for breakfast on a regular basis. So in 2019, we shifted gears to focus, same mission, same youth, but really on touring the ecosystem here. And so we have our next quarterly meetup coming up here in a few weeks, early October, and we're really proud of our students. Some of them- Kids you know, who are just starting ninth grade. That's when they began. Right. And so now our oldest cohort are college graduates. We have <gasps> some amazing success Aww. stories. I want to shout out to one of our students, Anaj Cho, who I think you may have met, Angela, in that, that year when we first met. And Ana was uh, in our second class of Silicon North Stars and mm-hmm. just an unbelievably energetic, you know, immigrant student who had such high potential. And he's gone on to, not only did he graduate um, with distinction from Pomona College, he had a full ride there from many scholarship sources, but he started his own business, his own entrepreneurial adventure. Right off the gate. In college. Oh. <laughs> while in school full time. It's called Didomi, and it's a, a sustainable company in the sustainability space that's working on issues of, of clean water in Africa while selling reusable water bottles here in the United States. And so he did that. He did a fellowship last summer with Bain and you know, he's off to the races. And so just That's one example great. of a student we've known from, you know, eighth grade really through today. Today, I'm talking to a Minnesota power pair, two prominent Minnesotans you may have heard of individually, but we're sitting them down together to discover a different side of them. I'm talking to Star Tribune publisher Steve Grove and Mary Grove, a managing partner at Bread and Butter Ventures. We're discussing their commitment to each other and their shared commitment to Minnesota. Uh, now I want to get to back to the romance here. Steve, you guys had only been married a couple of years when you started, you know, uh, Silicon North Stars together. But I want to hear the story of how you met. Uh, Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, we were both working at Google at the time, but we didn't meet in Silicon Valley. We actually met in Iraq. Um, We went there on a business development trip that the Pentagon sponsored. They were trying to get American companies to leave the country and do some economic development work in areas where we had troops in the ground. And so Mary had actually organized this trip over to Baghdad to help start the Google domain for um, for Rock, you know, the localized domain of Google. And I went along as a YouTube kind of content person to try to get more uh, content from Iraq onto YouTube. And we met. Um, so you don't this... know each other? No. Okay. Well, we had sort of over email, you know, but then we met there and kind of hit it off. But I had just moved to New York at the time. So we came back after this week and a half long time in Iraq and she was just leaving New York when we arrived back. So we thought, ah, maybe this was just you know, a friendship and we'll see where, where it leads. But um, we kind of stuck with it and did long distance for a year. And I came to my senses nine months later and chased her out to California. And a few months later, we were engaged. So it was sort of a unique moment. It, we, it could have been ships passing in the night, but there was something there and we followed it. But again, I'm hearing shared interest, right? You had a shared yeah, interest yeah. In, in something. And, and Mary, what do you remember about meeting Steve? I was quite impressed, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> no, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> no, tell me, because you're busy. Like you, we, he said you organized this trip, so you're working. We had a great, uh, so we had a great 
project that we worked on both with this Iraq trip and then on an ongoing basis. And so it was an effort called the Bottom 20, which was looking at the 20 least connected countries in the world from an access perspective and sending in a cross-functional team from across Google to learn as much as we could and then come home and launch as many partnerships and products as we could. And so Steve and I met in this professional context of we, we both had a deep passion and interest in emerging markets, in a lot of you know international development issues. And so, yes, it was electric chemistry, I think intellectually. And, you know, I thought I was very impressed with him. And, <laughs> and so we got, we got back to New York and thought, you know, what's going to happen? But he immediately, a few days later, said, my parents are visiting New York City next week. Do you want to come meet my parents? And I thought, this sounds great. So lo yeah, it was and a little early to do the parent intro, wasn't there, it? There was now, no now pressure that in that sense. And so <laughs> they are absolutely wonderful. And, and so but that was that was the beginning of our relationship. And it always has been just a very electric connection. And we've remained, you know, connected professionally on the various threads of our, our careers throughout since then. You know what I think, though? I mean, it, we actually had more in common than you might think. I mean, yes, Mary's parents were immigrants who came from Thailand. She grew up in California. My parents were from Iowa, and I grew up in the Midwest. But I think both of our parents, you know, started small businesses, you know, built them from the ground up in their communities, um, cared a lot about family. So I, I feel like the more we got to know each other, the more we realized we had a ton in common, even if we came from different ethnicities and different backgrounds. I think that kind of was an initial, initial part of the spark, too. But and and dating prior to dating each other, um, I think one of the challenges I had when I was dating is I couldn't find uh, people who kind of, I guess, were maybe as ambitious. Like I was in constant motion. I was always trying to get to the next yeah, level. Yeah. And a lot of people found that, you know, I don't want to say intimidating, but not what they wanted to do. But uh, I just wanted somebody who could like, can, can you keep up with me? Because I'm kind of a moving target <laughs> here. And uh, is that something that you kind of were looking for? Like someone who you recognizing that you had lots of different interests and that you were likely changing year to year? Is this someone who can can change with me? Yes, we had we had such so many similarities, including in our tempo. And I we both kind of joke, we only have one year. And we both only have one gear. <laughs> and so, and we love that go, 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 always want to make space for, for more. And so that definitely felt very motivating. We, we push each other, we support each other. And neither of us has ever felt like this is the moment for one of us to take a step back, even though our, our lives are very full. And so I just so appreciate that. And I think it's a new, a different paradigm for me, right, of having a truly equal partner in life. And so... Why did you want to move back to Minnesota? You, you you mentioned that. Was that ever like an an immediate decision or it came later? Why come back to Minnesota? Yeah. Well, you know, we had a lot of things going for us in California and we liked living out there for sure. I think having kids was the first thing that happened. We um we did have kids eventually after uh, a lot of struggle and had twins. And so we were thrilled about that. A boy and a girl. And a boy and a girl. And, you know, they were a year or so old and we thought, gosh, you know, where do we want to raise our kids? We loved living in, uh, in Silicon Valley and being at Google and traveling the world and all that. But your life starts to change. And we felt more like kind of citizens of planet Earth than citizens of a location. And we thought, gosh, it'd be nice to put down roots someplace that feels like we're committed to that place. And quite honestly, Silicon North Star has kind of got us reconnected to Minnesota because we we're coming back here to see the students and engage and connect. And there was more of a growing tech scene here than we had probably given the state credit for. And we're like, maybe we could maybe we could make it work there. And really, it was a job that Mary was offered that made it possible professionally for us to make the move. I came here and just worked remotely for Google for a while. But 
Mary was offered a job as a partner at um, a venture capital firm called Rise of the Rest that um, she can tell you more about, but it essentially invests in startups that are outside of the coasts. And so we thought, what if we just kind of reinvent ourselves, come here and start a new chapter and, and take a left turn in life and see what it feels like? And of course, my family being here made that a little easier, but it was it definitely felt like an experiment at the time, I would say. What did you have some apprehension about moving here and, and raising your kids here, Mary? It was a very deliberate, volitional decision. And, you know, as many Minnesotans know, there's a there's a deep, uh, deep roots here. And many people who are passionate about growing up here and end up moving back here. It was actually my idea. I, I raised my hand and said, Steve, what if is this the moment? Because we always had in the back of our minds potentially a Midwest chapter in the future at some point, but the moment felt right, and both professionally and personally, right? Steve, as Steve shared, sort of the family moment we were in. And then professionally, I had come back recently from my maternity leave and was ready to make a, a shift, decided that shift would be full-time going into venture capital and really working with the startup ecosystem still, but through a very specific lens of investing. And that was the opportunity to join Steve Case and his team at at Revolution on the Rise of the Rest Fund. And the the mission was about right democratizing access to capital, looking at, at companies throughout the heartland. And it felt like this great alignment of, okay, professional and personal and timing. And given I'm from an immigrant family, I have an enormous family, mostly in Thailand. And so here in the U.S., we're extremely close, but we're just a handful of my, my immediate family. We're in a variety of different cities. And that idea of raising our kids in this community, helping be a part of it, helping to hopefully bolster and, and build some unique things here was really exciting. Do I have apprehension about winter driving and whatnot? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Steve, let's talk about uh, the, the newspaper. What does the publisher of a major newspaper even do? What's your job? <laughs> well, that, well, that's changing a lot these Sounds days, very, I think. very uh, uh, impressive, but what is your job? Yeah, well, uh, I'm charged with leading our organization to its next chapter, really. You know, the Star Tribune is something that I think so many Minnesotans have known forever. I certainly grew up with it. It was this kind of iconic brand in our state, but it was known as a newspaper, you know, a physical stack of paper that gets dropped, that gets dropped on your front door. And that's changing rapidly, right? People get news in far different ways. So really my biggest job is to work alongside my amazing colleagues at the Star Tribune and help us navigate the transition to a new chapter, which is entirely focused on a, a digital uh, product uh, and, and a digital business model. And to reimagine what the Star Tribune can be for Minnesota. I think this is a an institution that has done so much for our state and can do so much more. And it's a time, I think, in Minnesota where uniquely we've had several years of really challenging news, probably moments where people don't want to pick up a newspaper and don't want to read the headlines. News I think fatigue. News fatigue. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think there's actually a lot more going on in Minnesota that we can be proud of and that we can learn from too. And so we're really seeing this as a moment to reimagine how we expand our coverage, how we tell more stories for the state, how we remain committed to being that that uh, check on, on, on government and on leadership, but also um, help elevate stories that you might not otherwise find elsewhere. So it's, a, it's an important moment for us and one where we have to kind of reimagine everything if we're going to build this next chapter in the way that Minnesota deserves. I'm not sure many people know that you, you started out as a journalist. Uh, you, yeah. you interned uh, with uh, Atlantic Monthly. You were uh, a writer for the Boston Globe. Uh, you did some work with ABC News. And uh, when you were at YouTube, you were um, you led their news and politics division in New York. Um, so what is it about journalism that you 
enjoyed as, as a younger man. And, and what do you see as the challenges now? Yeah, you know, I remember in college thinking, gosh, the best job on the entire planet is to be a staff writer for The New Yorker. Wouldn't that be the most amazing job in the world? I just like to write, you know, mm-hmm. I like to report. But it, I didn't have that long of a career in journalism. I think I just became enamored with what technology could do that was similar to journalism, right? To, to elevate stories, to give us access, access to information, to connect us with something that feels bigger than ourselves. And I think in many ways, platforms like Google and YouTube have done that um, in really extraordinary new ways. I think coming back to journalism, which wasn't something I necessarily expected to do, has been as much about building up um, our state here in Minnesota and understanding that at a time of a lot of change, really important institutions need to retain their relevancy and their power. And I think the Star Tribune is one of those institutions. And uniquely in Minnesota, we've got a lot going for us. You talk about all the challenges in media, but my gosh, people here, they love their news. They love to vote. They love to participate. So there's a lot of reasons to be really optimistic about Minnesota as a place where we think we can build the leading model for local news in the country. You look at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, these are kind of seen as these national models. We think the Star Tribune can be that model for the rest of the country for local. And it's just going to take some hard work, some innovation, some willingness to fail, try some new things. But I'm confident we can do it. We've got a great team there, and we're going to keep growing. We've got a great owner and a great board, too. Mary, I want to learn more about um, you know some of your previous jobs. Um, when I first met you, you were, um, I think, the director of Google for Entrepreneurs. Now, what, what, what is Google for Entrepreneurs? What was that job? So today, the effort is known as Google for Startups, and we built it as Google for Entrepreneurs was a team that I was very fortunate to get to build from from the ground up at Google starting in 2011. And the idea there was that Google began as a startup in a garage. Right? We had scaled this completely global platform impacting billions of people around the world. How could Google then serve as a platform to empower that next generation of startups to launch, build, grow, become the next Google, hopefully? And so this was our umbrella and alphabet for looking at how we could invest potentially directly in companies, but also by supporting and investing in startup ecosystems. And so we built this team to utilize Google's tech, our people, and deployed over $100 million into over 100 countries. In the time that that I was there, the team is rocking and rolling still today. And so now as a managing partner at Bread and Butter Ventures, I love the name, uh, describe what you do and, and, and explain like what is a venture capital firm? Well, thank you. We we love the name, too. I didn't know until uh, I moved here that one of the nicknames, the many nicknames for our great state is the bread and butter state. So it seemed very appropriate. But venture capital is is a very specific form of financing a startup or a new company. There are many ways to capitalize a business. And venture is a great fit for companies who are building high growth, high potential startups who are, you know, trying to build billion dollar companies to change, transform industries. And so this is an industry that's been around for quite some time. And yet, you know, one of the things that I'm passionate about is that great ideas exist everywhere, but we don't have democratized access to capital, to venture mm-hmm. capital specifically, right? And it's it's our mission to change that paradigm. And so what kind of companies do you focus on supporting? So with Bread and Butter Ventures, our, our goal is really to invest early stage, so seed stage venture all across the country, but we leverage what we call the Minnesota home field advantage. So leaning into three core sectors where I would argue Minnesota's bar none in the nation and perhaps even the world. So healthcare, the food system or food tech, and then enterprise SaaS, which is enterprise software. Those are the three focus areas. And the way that we operate, we think what makes us special 
vis-a-vis our location, is really leveraging this Fortune 500 and large enterprise backbone that is so strong here in our state. And Angela, I would say that you know, moving here, having worked in ecosystems all over the country, all over the world, wow, Minnesota is sitting on an incredible asset, again, via this enterprise backbone. So my my business partner on the fund, Brett Broll, and I had this thesis that if you can leverage that enterprise backbone to tie these titans of industry with the emerging tech startups and their verticals, incredible things can happen. And so we've gone out and partnered with, we have 17 partners who are collaborators with our bread and butter innovation circle. And those include organizations, uh, including 3M, Allianz, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Minnesota, Mayo Clinic, US Bank, and more. And it's really about leveraging the expertise in our ecosystem. So we have a vehicle of capital that we've raised from what we call limited partners or our investors that we're then investing into a portfolio of, of tech startups. And we're privileged to have, again, groups like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Minnesota, Burnix, the Bigelow Foundation in our corner supporting the work that we're doing. And and I know you have a, a heavy interest in women-owned companies, companies uh, owned by people of color. Um, is, is that unusual in, in the venture capital world? Unfortunately, the, the numbers are very abysmal as we look across the industry. Oh, abysmal. So, oh, okay. Abysmal. So, <laughs> okay. That so last picture. year, yeah, right. for, example, for example, last year, only 2% of venture capital funding went mm. to companies with female founders. Less than 1% of venture capital funding last year went to companies founded by people of color. And with Bread and Butter, you know, we're very clear that our laser focus is investing for financial return. This is a an asset class, right? We're responsible for returning capital by investing in, in phenomenal businesses. And, and the big and, is that we believe the way to do that is investing in the widest aperture possible of companies founded by people from all backgrounds who are building technology that represents the people their tech is built to serve, right? And we, we saw really during the pandemic that many uh, women-owned businesses, uh, businesses owned by people of color, I mean, there were, there were leaders getting things done, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And we find that. So in our portfolio, we have 67 companies at the moment. And we're really excited about the fact that 53% of our companies are led by female founders. And 63% of our companies have at least one founder who's a person of color. And we don't have quotas, right? It's more about the intentionality of every layer of the stack. Who do we take capital from? What does the composition of our team look like? Who are we seeing from a pipeline perspective? How do we help our companies after we invest, recruit and retain good talent? How do we think about board composition? So mm-hmm. it really is, it feels like the early innings, but the right conversations are happening across the industry. And I feel very hopeful. Uh, I have a written qu- question here, uh, Steve, for you. Uh, Sarah and Adina would like to know, what does Steve Grove think about the reading issues and the reading crisis in Minnesota? What happens uh, to places like the Star Tribune when we have maybe a, a literacy issue that we're dealing with, particularly with the younger generation? Um, she says too many kids are being left behind. So both of you have a deep interest in education. What are your thoughts about uh, maybe coverage uh, of this in the paper? And, yeah. and what, what are we going to do about uh, not enough kids being able to read uh, at the level they should be for their grade level? Well, this is a crisis, and it's so important to our state and to our future. Uh, you know, I think the American education system needs to take a good hard look at reading in particular as this foundational component of how we grow active citizens and, and 
smart young students for our future. There's a lot of good work out, done out there. I think there's a lot more money the legislature has put towards education this last session that should help us here in Minnesota. We've generally led the country in some of these categories versus lagged it. But of course, there's huge disparities based on your zip code. And that's something mm-hmm. that Silicon North Star is trying to tackle by focusing on neighborhoods and in communities where you have students that face bigger barriers for growth. For our business, for the Star Tribune, you're right. I mean, we need good readers. We need people who want to read to be our, our future uh, customers and audience. Um, but also we're looking into other ways to meet people where they're at, right? Which means that not just the written word is how we're going to do our journalism moving forward. We're going to lead more into other mediums that are, uh, are are popular with younger people too. So we're looking more into audio and video and some of those other tools. Um, but at a foundational level, I think Minnesota's success is the Star Tribune's success and vice versa. I think if we have a state where you've got uh, students who, who can read and who are captivated by the written word and want to learn more through it, then um, and the Star Tribune can help deliver great content to them, and we can all grow better. And Mary, how old are your twins now? They are six, or as they'll tell you, six and a half. Six and a half. So <laughs> you all, as parents, you're, you're spending time helping them learn how to read. And, and what, what have you learned about uh, you know, that process of, of how kids come to learn at, at such a young age? each child's learning journey is so unique and different, right? And so that's mm-hmm. part of it is, is how do we ensure that it isn't a one-size-fits-all and we can think about customized ways of learning for each child. I had a good um, reminder of this with Silicon North Stars, right? We had a we have a college scholarship program as part of our mm-hmm. organization. And with that, we have a standard application process where you submit essays, answer a few essay questions. And one of the parents flagged to me, you know, my, my child really struggles with that, but is so bright and so committed to your program. What do you think about a video submission? Right. And it, oh. it really pushed us to think about supporting children in with core literacy. Yes. And what are the ways that we can capture the full picture of who that student is in a way that meets them where they are? Um, let's take a, a phone call from a listener as we talk with uh, Steve Grove, the CEO and publisher of the Star Tribune, uh, who previously served as the deed commissioner for Minnesota, and Mary Grove, uh, a married couple. Mary is a venture investor and managing partner at Bread and Butter Ventures, which invest in early stage tech startups. Uh, in Eaton Prairie, we have a, a listener calling in. This is Michael on the phone. Good morning, Michael. What did you want to ask? Good Rashida? morning. Hi. Uh, this question is for Steve. Uh, Steve, I'm a New York transplant, and uh, in a way, I can channel some of uh, what you've shared, uh, you and Mary have shared uh, over the broadcast. And uh, finding out that this place is in many ways a gem in terms of raising children, uh, in terms of the healthcare system. So it's been a place that I've called home now for 42 years. Oh, wow. But being an old New York Metro person, uh, I'm very fond of the New York Times. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, what I find a little frustrating with the trip is I I think it's important for me to have a pulse on local and regional news. But at times I see articles that had been in the New York Times perhaps were syndicated. Um, And is it not a cost-effective option to create a cadre of journalists who are doing more independent research and reporting and traveling Mm. Uh, than you currently have, and I realize that you can't. You know, the New York Times is 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 a mm-hmm. uh, sure. is a titan yeah. in the newspaper industry. But but in terms of maybe trying to shift a little bit more toward a cadre of independent journalists, yeah. Ooh, that sounds expensive. A cadre <laughs> of journalists traveling—that sounds very expensive, Michael. 
What about to you, Steve? Well, it's interesting, right? There used to be a time when every local paper in the country had a foreign correspondent to several countries, right? That just doesn't make sense anymore for a whole host of reasons. But I think that what you're getting at, Michael, is really important, which is that you look to a local news source to give you local news and to give you enterprising local news. And that's really what we are committed to. We have... You might be surprised to hear, but uh, the largest newsroom in the entire upper Midwest, even Chicago doesn't have a newsroom nearly as big as ours. And we, we're proud of that fact. And we do a lot of tremendous and great local reporting. And we'll include wire stories from the New York Times and others because our readers uh, find that useful and it gives a broader perspective of what's happening. When we do cover issues outside of our state, we try to do that with a Minnesota lens. What's the unique Minnesota angle we can give you on what's happening in Washington, what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Europe? And so um, we might leverage uh, other sources to do that than we might have in the past, but we're committed to keeping a strong newsroom. It's, it's just a basic fact that the more great reporters you have in your news organization, the better stories you're going to tell. And, you know, I'm really proud of the work that our, our team does uh, every week to tell the stories of Minnesotans, and um, we're going to continue to do it. What about sports journalism? Uh, there have been some big oh, headlines gosh. of sports uh, departments just being decimated. I know, I know. And you might not surprise you to hear, but these this is our most traffic section of the Star Tribune. There's something uniquely local and uh, definitionally local about sports. Um, We're committed to it. We think it's really important. Um, We think we're blessed in this market to have seven professional sports teams in Minnesota, which is very unique. And, you know, you see places like the New York Times making shifts towards the athletic as their source of sports news versus having their own newsroom. You know, that was an acquisition they made that uh, makes sense for their model. But for us here, there's nothing that beats having a local sports reporter who knows the teams that can get inside the uh, the locker room and have that that conversation with players and give people a lens into what's happening here. And it's a really important part of the Star Tribune. Uh, I want to learn more about what you guys do uh, for fun. Uh, I'm sure the the twins are a constant source of entertainment. But uh, how does Mary relax? Uh, What do you like to do uh, for fun together? We really love the outdoors as a family. So anything we can do, whether it's exploring the lakes, we got a canoe for the first time this past summer. We love camping. Um, The kids love camping. And so it's just a great opportunity for us to be in the great outdoors. And one of the great things about Minnesota, of course, is, is all of that natural resource. So that's a big one. And then another is we love all things centered around food. So we love to cook. We love to eat. We love to teach our kids to cook. Mm-hmm. Some of my fondest memories were cooking with my mother growing up, you know, by her side, starting at age two. And she's an amazing uh, Thai chef. And so being able to share that. My, my mother passed, unfortunately, the year before our kids were born. And so being able to really share in that experience of food and culture with them, maintaining her memory through that. So those are two things. But we love we love being active. We love being outdoors. The connection, right? Yeah. And uh, the canoe. Ooh, yeah. that's, that's very Minnesotan. <laughs> that is very Minnesotan. We're giving and it a so go. Where does this canoe uh, go? Where have you taken the canoe? What are some of the, the So far, just locally. Right. But, you know, I think we'll get up to the Boundary Waters at some point. I'm not sure what the right age for that is. Our kids are six and a half, as Mary said. So maybe... Maybe in a couple of years. And we what, do have fun together. What does a six-year-old do on a camping trip? I can only imagine. Eat s'mores. Unlimited s'mores. <laughs> we sticks, have, right? Yeah, we have a rule on camping. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want. That's you kind can of stay up as late as we do. So, and, yeah. so what does the division of, um, of chores? I mean, th- this is just work, right? Like feeding people, getting folks dressed out the door, and, and uh, kind of overseeing um, activities. How do you all divide and share uh, parenting and housework? Mary? We have a lot of just really open communication. We have a lot to coordinate logistically. And so we're just in constant communication about who's doing what when. But in general, you know, Steve has really spoiled me, me being a Californian. He does all of the 
the heavy lift of winter. So I, I've never, I've never <laughs> shoveling. What are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know if I want to uh, admit this, but I've never shoveled since, since moving here. But oh, this a lot is of, great. Uh, a lot. We both do. We both do quite a bit. But I, I do really enjoy cooking. Is why I tend to lean in that direction. He's an excellent mm-hmm. meat smoker and and grill master. But really, it's about scheduling. And we're we're very fortunate to be able to have family here too, right? And and that we have leaned on quite a bit for support. And so. So division of of duties, recognizing that you each have busy lives. And so everybody's got to be all, all hands on deck here. And yeah, and it's not perfect. I mean, I mean, there's certainly times where we disagree about that and we have to navigate it. And that's just part of the day-to-day of it. But I think we generally get it right. And we just kind of commit to trying to s- split it as much as we can. I would say during the pandemic, you definitely took more of a load than I did, given where we were at as a state and how things went with Deed. But um and for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, we aspire at least to try to be 50-50. I, I think you probably do more than, than I at the end of the day, but we, we try. No, you pull your weight and it, it just it starts early and it ends late <laughs> in the day. How about that? <laughs> Let's talk about uh, D, the uh, Department of Employment and Economic Development. Um, the last few times I've interviewed you, it's been Commissioner Grove. Right, yeah. And um, ooh, people had uh, uh, people were going through it, uh, the economic turmoil that we experienced during the p- pandemic. Um, and and. What do you remember most? It was such a busy time. Uh, I remember seeing you at news conferences all the time, uh, Steve, and trying to answer questions and working with the staff and trying to help people get through. Uh, Is it a blur? What do you remember most about that job and what it taught you? Yeah. Well, so much. It it is something of a blur. I remember just being totally focused on trying to get it right. We all were because there was no playbook for any of this, right? The governor, Jan, myself, uh, the whole team were trying to figure out how you navigate this moment without a real playbook. Um, we had a great chief of staff, Chris Schmitter, who led the whole effort, and we were just trying to learn what we could. I think what sticks with me the most is the ways that Minnesotans stood up. I mean, you had companies who would transform their production lines from making hockey jerseys to making PPE, um, distilleries who suddenly were making hand sanitizer instead of alcohol, um, you know, companies like Medtronic outsourcing ventilators to help other people create them themselves. I think Minnesota stood up in a unique way. When I talked to my peers in other states, they looked at what how people were reacting here with a lot of admiration. So that sticks out to me a lot. Um, and you were traveling the state. You were meeting people face-to-face throughout greater Minnesota as well. Yeah. And you can imagine the perspective on things in greater Minnesota was different than here in the metro significantly. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of really tough conversations. I think what we committed to try to do is just to always be talking to people, you know, whether it was those daily press conferences at 2 p.m., whether it was, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of different um, listening sessions we did with business leaders and workers and beyond. We knew we weren't always going to get it right, but we had to keep talking, keep sharing what we knew and we didn't. And the governor really set that tone uh, with his leadership. And I think we all just tried to follow it and we did our best. A hot issue was a uh bringing more broadband to greater Minnesota. Was there progress there? A lot of progress. You can imagine the pandemic reminded us all how important it is to have high-speed internet. And, you know, D, the agency I had the privilege of leading, has one of the best broadband programs in the country. And not only did legislators continue to put more money into it, but we did a great job of pulling down federal dollars, too. We'd like to be the first state in the country to have every single part of the state connected. It's not just about being able to stream Netflix or hang out on the web. This is how you start businesses and how you ensure you can farm more effectively. It's it's really the modern-day plumbing, right? And I think the pandemic gave was a chance to really accelerate those efforts because suddenly it just made sense to everyone why it was so important. So connecting the dots, that job was an 
in many ways, excellent preparation for your work now leading the Star Tribune? Yeah, I certainly learned a lot about the state. And, you know, I think also when you lead through crisis, you just you develop certain muscles you didn't have before and learning how to spot what is a crisis, what isn't, how to navigate challenging circumstances. But I think also what it did for me, I came from tech. It was a much more free-flowing environment there. I didn't think a lot about institutions as much. But when you spend time inside of government and you realize how important a stable institution is during a crisis, I kind of brought some of that with me to the Star Tribune, having a stable uh, news organization in your state that can provide accurate, quality, objective reporting for Minnesotans is a huge part of making this a great place to live. And so that belief we can have these institutions we trust in at a time when so much is changing is really important. Mary, in addition to um, being the, a parent of twins, or six, um, your full-time job uh, as a, a venture investor, uh, your job overseeing Silicon North Stars, you're also on a lot of boards, uh, and two in particular um, that you are involved in. You became a trustee at the Minneapolis uh, Foundation in 2020. Uh, you're also a board member at the Bush Foundation, uh, that in 2021. Everybody is trying to get get with Mary's leadership and decision-making. Um, what is it about that work, that board work that excites you? You know, I was so fortunate when after moving here, I realized what a philanthropic and giving community Minnesota is, right, among the highest in the nation. And I also realized that philanthropy was not a sector that I was naturally intersecting with in my day-to-day work, other than potentially applying for grants for Silicon <laughs> North Stars, right? And so the opportunity to get to know our ecosystem and really immerse myself in a 360 view was really compelling. So I was incredibly honored when when Archie Ryback invited me to join the board right of the, the Minneapolis Foundation and with Jennifer Ford Reedy and the Bush Foundation, two organizations I deeply admire and the underlying work that each is focusing on, right, ranging from advancing racial equity, racial justice to reimagining education to thinking about mm-hmm. regional work. It so underpins the work that I do in the private sector too, but through a different lens. And so that's been an absolute joy and honor. And on the flip side, I serve on a number of startup boards for the companies that we invest in at the earliest stage where it's a three-person board, you know, a five-person company. To get it set up right. And to get that that Mm -hmm. perspective from both ends of the spectrum is super, super invaluable for me. All right, let's take a phone call as we talk to Steve Grove and Mary Grove. In Minneapolis, we have Susan on the phone. Uh, Go ahead, Susan, with your question. Hi, um, I'm wondering why the Star Tribune is not carrying like a weekly uh, article about the danger that our democracy is in, because this is not um, something that uh, has to be done as a partisan issue. The facts are there, and so without any political hyperbole, we should be talking about the fact that gerrymandering and the things that are happening at the state and national level have given us a government of the you know, ruled by the minority instead of the majority. And that's proven over and over again with the national polls that are done on the issues. And um, uh, Heather Cox Richardson, with her letters from an American, Mm -hmm. has done an incredible job. And I wish that you would win a Pulitzer Prize doing a story on on how we maintain our democracy. Thank you. You couldn't be more right that our democracy uh, is precious and we need to constantly cultivate it. The existence of a strong newspaper itself is what I think makes our state a stronger democracy. This election coming up is really important, and we're going to cover it from all the angles you'd expect, and we're going to cover it from a Minnesota angle as well. And 
hopefully help our readers make the decisions that they want to make based on the facts. And that's the job of a newspaper. We're here to share the facts with you. You decide based on what we're able to surface, but we're going to, we're going to get into it in a way that we hope reveals stories and ideas and themes that maybe you hadn't thought about before too. So excited for that. It's an opportunity for us to be there for Minnesotans and give you what you need to navigate a really challenging moment uh, in our state and our country. We've been listening to a conversation I had a few months ago with married couple Mary Grove and Steve Grove, a Minnesota power pair. Steve is the publisher of the Star Tribune and the former commissioner of the Department of Employment and Economic Development. Mary is a venture investor and managing partner at Bread and Butter Ventures, which invests in early stage tech startups. Power Pairs is a new series I kicked off earlier this year, and I am so open to your suggestions. Is there a power pair you want me to interview? They could be a married couple, siblings, best friends, or business partners, or maybe a mother-daughter, father-son dynamic duo. Email me your ideas at adavis at npr.org. And if you missed a part of today's show, remember you can find it on our podcast. Search for NPR News with Angela Davis. Wherever you get your podcasts, listen when it's convenient for you. This conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. Be safe, everyone. <laughs>